theyeshiva.net. One of America's premier Jewish thinkers and leaders, Rabbi Waiwai Yosef Yitzhak Jacobson, is one of the most sought-after speakers in Judas, Jewish world today. He serves as a mentor to hundreds of thousands across the globe and is considered one of the most passionate and mesmerizing communicators of Torah and Ashkafa in today's generation. During the coronavirus pandemic, he, pre- he presented hundreds of classes and lectures to every demographic of the Jewish community worldwide, offering inspiration and perspective. His video clips of Chizik went viral, reaching millions. Rabbi Waiwai was the first rabbi to ever be invited by the Pentagon to deliver the religious keynote to the U.S. military chiefs of chaplains and to the National Security Agency. Over the last 20 years, Rabbi Jacobson traveled to hundreds of communities, shuls, schools, yeshivas, universities across the globe, educating and inspiring people all, with all backgrounds with majestic depth of Torah and Yiddishkeit. Rabbi Jacobson founded and serves as dean of the yeshiva.net, teaching via the web one of the largest Torah classes in the world today with thousands of students globally. Born in 1972 in Brooklyn, New York, Rabbi Jacobson grew up at the feet of Lavab Trudeba, absorbing his teaching and writing in 1988. At the age of 15, the young Jacobson began serving as a small team of oral scribes and human tape recorders. They were charged with memorizing and transcribing three to seven hours of talks by the Lubavitcher of Blessed Memory, which were presented on Shabbat and Jewish holidays when re- recording devices were not used. Small psicho, but go. It's all yours on the floor. Thank you. Thank you, Coach Menachem. Thank you, my dear friends. Thank you, Rabbi Usher. Thank you. I see we have almost 800 people. Can I and Wow. Okay. Thank you so, so much. I'm thrilled to be here, and it's really a very great privilege to be at this special Sunday evening program. And I just want to say that I'm also very honored, because we have a principle in Gemara, Kivon Shehigid, Shuv Einechayzer Magid. The way I interpret it is, once you hear a Magid once, Shuv Einechayzer Magid. You don't invite him back a second time. That's an old principle in Jewish life. So I am very honored to have been invited to be Chayzer Magid a second time and celebrating a great milestone, number 30 of these sessions. I also want to give a shout out to the Lakewood community because I know that most of the listeners and the viewers come from Lakewood. That's where Rabbi Asher is, that's where Coach Menachem is, that's where this whole thing really took root. And it's a testimony, if one needs a testimony, to some of the extraordinary qualities of the Lakewood community, with thousands and thousands of young people, men and women, of many different backgrounds and different types of communities, but united by the ambition and the yearning to grow, to work on ourselves, to work on our marriages, on our relationships, on our shalom bias, on our parenting skills, on our relationship with ourselves, with others, with our community, of course, with the Rebbeinu Shalom, with the Jewish people, to increase in our Torah, so I salute all of you, because really, Sunday night, is a lot of options, you know, remember the announcement on the airlines, we are aware that you could have chosen many other airlines, so we thank you, and so, so many people, come on week and week and week again, and it's all a focus of Kiddush Shem Shamayim, to really become the people that we are capable of becoming, to really be the Mamleches Kayan and Vigay Kaddish. It's a great tribute to Lakewood and everyone joining us from wherever you are around the world, those live, those who will watch it later. And I thank you for the schus and the opportunity. So our theme this evening is a pretty loaded theme, as our dear coach just uh, described eloquently. Why are so many marriages failing? And uh, we will go very soon straight to questions. Reb Usher warned me no long 
monologues today because we were at a Shabbaton together and I gave a very long presentation. It was, by the way, relatively short to what they asked. You should just know they wanted longer, but just for the record. I had to say that for my own confidence. But I just want to, as a psicha, make a few points that I think might be, might be valuable. Whenever anybody gives one reason or two reasons why so many marriages are failing, I find it to be not very accurate. I don't think one can identify and say, this is the factor. I think there are many factors. I'll mention just a few, and there are, are more beyond of what I'm mentioning. The fact is today, there is st- divorce is not such a stigma as it was. Number two, women have a greater feeling of independence and autonomy. Number three, people are more open today about their emotions. Let's face it, Rabbi told me when he began, he couldn't believe what's coming out here on Zoom, how people are open. For many years and decades, it was understood that we had wall-to-wall carpets, so we'll have enough place to bury all the emotions under the carpet. But today, times have changed. People are much more open about how they're feeling. They're more connected to how they feel. They're more aware of how they feel. I think we have given people the language of feelings, the language of emotions, the language to articulate toxicity, discontent, deep pain and anxiety. It has milus, it has chesronis, like everything in the world. It has great virtues, it has great flaws. People today are willing to say, I'm not happy and I don't want to live this way. Where in the past, the language, I'm happy, I'm not happy, since when is happiness a reality? And even if it is, to be able to acknowledge it and talk about it and say, that's it. I, I do not want to be miserable and not want to be happy. This is a chiddush, at least to some degree, I think, of our times. Some people will say it's terrible, but I think there's also a tremendous virtue in this, at least the way I see it. And that is that before the geula comes, all inner toxicity must emerge. It's called the end of Avedis Habirurim in Kabbalistic and spiritual language of Machshava, Hashkafa, Musa, Kabbalah, Which means, if in previous generations, many of us could live with a lot of trauma and dysfunction embedded in us, before Geula comes, and what's Geula? Geula is the consciousness of oneness, of harmony, of eternal happiness, bliss, delight, Oneness with our inner divine core, our infinite core is going to emerge. Reality is challenging us to spit out intergenerational trauma, to spit out a lot of things that have been sitting within us for many, many generations, because we have been through a lot, in order to be able to open ourselves up to a consciousness of redemption, of oneness. So I say in marriage as well, when we are experiencing strife, anxiety, discontent, challenges, it's not easy, it's painful. But very, very often, these are incredible opportunities to be able to teach us where our work lay, where we have to grow, how we can maximize our potentials and become the people that we're capable of becoming. I am always enthralled every year again and again by that unbelievable episode of Yaakov Avinu choosing to marry one woman. Her name is Rachel. 
Yefas Toyav, Yefas Mara, she's extraordinary, exquisite. And yet, in reality, he ends up marrying another woman, her sister, Leah. Ve'ene Leah Rakois. Vayar Hashem Kisnua Leah. Vayahav Gamas Rachel Mileya. What is the mystery of this story? And one of the profoundest explanations is it's really a timeless pattern of many a marriage. There is the spouse I choose to marry, and there is the spouse I end up marrying. Rachel is the woman I dream of, or the man I dream of in my imagination and my dreams. That beautiful, exquisite, picture-perfect, flawless, bright, amazing human being. Again, the husband or the wife. Rachel begematria vayihi er, says the Ramemifanu. Rachel means a you, a sheep, like the bright, beautiful, serene sheep. You know what Leah means? Leah means exhaustion. Leah means anxiety. I marry a man or a woman, and I thought I'm marrying Rachel. And suddenly I discover Leah. Leah, in a way, it says in Zayar, is deeper than Leah, than Rachel. Leah is called Alma de Eskasia, the unconscious. Rachel is the marriage with my own imagination. Leah is the marriage that challenges me to become the person I'm capable of becoming. So when we enter into a marriage, we often wake up in the morning and say, Oi! Suddenly you discover things about your husband and your wife. It wasn't in the resume. It wasn't in the dating. It wasn't in the shidduch. It wasn't discussed. Maybe you couldn't, you weren't even ready to appreciate it. Because life matures all of us and we all grow up. What do I do when I discover Leah? Some of us get into a fight. Some of us run away. It's fight or flight. Some of us go into a depression. Some of us learn to ignore and repress. Some of us learn to live with it begrudgingly. But the Torah is telling us there's something much deeper. And that is, it's Leah that was always meant for you. Rachel was the invitation to be able to be in a relationship with Leah. It's Leah who will turn you into the person you're capable of becoming. It's Leah who will allow you to heal from your traumas, your insecurities, your fears. It's Leah who will allow you to fulfill the mission of your neshama. It's Leah who will allow you to penetrate through the superficiality, through the toxicity, through the midos that are eclipsing your true infinite divine self so that ultimately Leah and Rachel will become one. The two sisters will become one indeed. Till today, Yaakov is buried near Leah, not near Rachel, which is fascinating. And that's the secret of the Badekanish. Why do we cover the bride at the wedding? Why is it that when the Chosin betrothes his wife, arguably the most important moment of their marriage, he's not looking at her, she's not looking at him. What's going on? Look at each other. Because there is a very powerful statement here. The statement is, I am ready to marry not only the part that I see, but also the part that I don't see. I know that there's so much more to you than what my eyes can perceive at this moment. There are infinite layers of depth in the woman's soul like in the man's soul. And I am committed to transcend my fears and insecurities to be able to go into my depth so I should be able to touch your depth 
And together we will grow and bring out the best in each other through an ongoing vulnerable conversation that deals with our Rachel and with our Leah and allows both of them to merge. Now, I make one more point, and that is as follows. I find one of the great pitfalls that many of us have in marriage is this. We expect that marriage is inherently a stable relationship. And what was yesterday is will be today and will continue tomorrow, next week, next month, just as it is more or less when it comes to siblings, when it comes to business partners, when it comes to friends. It's a mistake. The relationship of marriage, not always, but in most cases, or at least in many cases, is inherently unstable. And the truth is that this is not just a psychological statement, it's a halachic statement. The Rogachover Gone writes, fascinatingly, listen to this, that when your Makadisha woman, the Rambam says in Hilchis Ishus Peri Gimel, when you betroth a woman, right, you have to make a bracha. We make the bracha under Chupash, Rishonov, Mitzvah, Mitzivonu, Al Harayis, etc. Mekadosh Ami Yisrodei Chupah V'Kedush. This has to be done before the Kedushin. What happens if you were Mekadosh already? You can't make the bracha anymore. It's like you eat an orange and then you make the bracha afterwards. You have to make Beira Priyates before you eat. And afterwards it's a bracha levatala. The same Rambam in Hilchis Ishus Perikut says when it comes to the Chupah Sheva Brachas, you could do it even a few days after the Nisuyan, after the marriage. Why? So the Rekha says, listen to this, because Nisuyan marriage is not a one-time event. It's a pu'ulon imsheches and halacha. It's constantly happening. Your marriage is recreated halachically every single moment anew. The fact that I was married an hour ago has no implication to the present moment. Halachically, the marriage is being recreated every moment. That's why you could make the bracha even after the chuppah, because the nisuyan, unlike the kiddushin, is constantly happening, and he compares it to creation. The Rebbein Shalom doesn't create the world once. He creates the world anew every single moment. What does this mean practically? Practically, it means you have to understand. Sometimes a wife or a husband is thinking to themselves, to herself, to himself, I don't understand. Shabbos, we had an amazing time with each other. We went on vacation, it was incredible. Just two hours ago, we were sitting at the table and there was so much warmth. And suddenly, I made a comment, he made a comment, she made a comment, this happened, that happened. And I don't feel this. What happened? Who's crazy? Am I insane? Are you insane? Well, let me tell you the facts. The fact is that couples tend to drift apart. That's how it is. The moment a husband and a wife are not connected, they tend to go opposite ways. In other words, the relationship is not inherently stable. It has to constantly be nurtured, fed, invigorated. Don't feel bad that it's not continuing on a cruise control. You put it on cruise control and the love and the romance and the affection continues. No, no, no. You got to constantly bring the two together. Why? Because they're so different, and they're opposite, and yet they're so close. And when you have two things, that are two people, that are so different and opposite, fire and water, and yet they're so close, and they become one, it needs constant trust, constant work. And therefore, and therefore, every exchange you have with your spouse 
either brings you closer or distances you one from another. Every single interaction is valuable. Either it brings out the trust or it creates some type of question mark, some type of insecurity. So if I'm walking into the kitchen and my wife is sitting in the kitchen and having a coffee and I acknowledge her and I say something affectionate, something that builds the relationship, we just became closer. If I ignore, if I ignore her, we drift away, even if very, very subtly. My wife, we live in Muncie, my wife is sitting on the porch and say, hey, look at the red bird. And I'm just, I give a grunt because I'm busy with my computer. There's a distance. Rather than stopping and acknowledging it and embracing that opportunity for connection. So my dearest friends, marriage is a journey. Sometimes it takes a lot, a lot of work. Sometimes it's easier. But here is the conclusion. When two people who are healthy and mature and we work on our marriage and we allow that trust and that connection and that sense of belonging to take root, there are few achievements and pleasures in life that are greater than that pleasure and that achievement of never ever being lonely, of always knowing that you have somebody at your side 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, who is one with you, who you can trust a thousand percent, who they can trust a thousand percent, who you belong to and who belongs to you. That sense of oneness is the great magical gift that the creator of the world has given us in marriage when we're both ready to put the necessary work into it. Thank you for listening. Thank you, everybody. Have a good night. Uh, <laughs> by the way, first of all, I want to say that we were completely maxed out, so uh, we should have stuck a screen, uh, streamed it. But a uh, thousand people are here, and people are trying to get in. So let's let's really take. You advantage. didn't. You didn't trust me. You didn't have betachin. That's right. I didn't listen to the rabbi. That's what happens. You don't so here's an example. We're not married. We're friends. Okay, not a big deal, right? We're not drifting away. In a marriage, everything is different. Okay, we're maxed out. Fine. They'll have to uh, watch the replay. That's right. Okay, let's start with a poll. Give you a minute break. Okay, just just to get the little feeling from the oil, and then we'll jump into questions again. The point of tonight's share is that it should be interactive. People, f- please feel free to ask questions. It is a sensitive topic, so you know, ask and feel comfortable. Rabbi Wawa, I'm sure you want people to be engaged and take advantage of you and to really. Yeah, let's go. Ready? Jumping. Here we go. Let's start with the poll. Why do you think marriages are struggling? It's a general question. It's four answers. Either one, lack of communication, B, immaturity, C, not going for help, or D, high expectations. Choose one of them. We don't know who's saying what, so just to get a feeling of everybody, please vote. Second question is, in your opinion, which is the most, which is the most stressful in marriages today? Is it financial? Is it children? Personal differences or expectations? Those are the two, two answers. Again, what do you think? What do you think? Why do you think marriages are struggling? Is the first question. The second question is what? In what, in your opinion, which one of the which is the most largest stressor in marriages today? Five seconds. Wow, this is a very interesting result. You're going to enjoy this one. Let's share it. End the polling. Okay. Check this out. 
Why do you think marriages are struggling today? Why, why? 61% feel it's a lack of communication, 9% immaturity, 4% feel not going for help. Look at that, such a small number. Wow. 7% of high expectations. In your opinion, which one, which is the most stretched in marriages today? Financial, 27%, children, 7%, 70% personal differences. Why, why? Look at this one. 50% of people, expectations. Wow. Unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so I, I have a bunch of questions. We'll start with one, and then if anybody wants to ask a question, please text me, and we'll go through it. And we have a lot, a lot of material here tonight, so let's really just start. Um, this is a question that came actually a few hours before the share. I'll read it. It's a personal question. I live in a community that does not date. I recently got married. Unfortunately, I have been very unhappy. I feel like he's not for me. He has zero chen in my eyes. And everything he does gets me nervous. In short, I simply don't like him. He's not my speed. He doesn't, he, he doesn't get me. We have no chemistry. It's been causing me a lot of pain as I don't know how to proceed from here. My question in short is, what is the Torah's view on marriage on such a situation? No, there is nothing seriously wrong with him. If so, is the Torah's view to work on Midos and find a way to make it work? Is divorce just an escape route to be used if, if something is more drastically wrong? I would really appreciate some insight on this angle. Wow. So first of all, I am so, so sorry to hear this. And if I could be here for you in any way, I would love to be here for you. It's a difficult situation. That's number one. Number two, I think, before I answer your question, it's just a lesson for all of us parents in any community you live in. If you live in such a community where dating is not really part of the process, it's so important It's so important to do whatever you can with Hashem's help to be able to ascertain that your daughter, your son, is going to be able to have a fulfilling and meaningful marriage. Never surrender to the foolishness of social conformity. It should look good. The family name is nice. The the pictures, it's going to look good. Remember, you're dealing here with a relationship of God willing, 70, 80, 90, 100 years hopefully even more, so important to take responsibility and to become mature and really look into what my daughter needs, what my son needs, and to be able to communicate with them throughout the process and make sure that this can be a binyan adeyat. Now, speaking to the person directly who wrote this letter, I don't know who wrote it, but I mean just speaking to you, I assume you're on here. I have to tell you, this is not a classic Torah question where Torah is going to tell you, stay married or get divorced. These are the cases when Torah turns to you and says, this is a very personal and intimate question that you have to make a decision about. And it's a faithful decision. You may have to make it with the help of people you really trust, confidants, people who are experts, who are experienced, who know you, and whom you can trust and really want your benefit. I'll just outline a few things that have to be taken into consideration. The first question you have to ask is, what are the pros and what are the cons? There are pros in staying in the marriage. You don't get divorced. You stay in a marriage. It's easier with the family. It's easier with the community. Maybe easier for you. Maybe easier for him. There are pros. There's a certain stability. You're more like your friends. You're more like your relatives. He may be a good guy. You say there's nothing wrong with him. Right? You may like his value system and what type of father he'll be, God willing, for your children. There are pros. There are cons. There are cons to stay in the marriage, as you described, and perhaps more. You have to really ask yourself, 
What are the advantages of staying in the marriage? What are the disadvantages of staying in the marriage? What are the advantages in getting divorced? And what are the disadvantages in getting divorced? And then you have to ask yourself, and what are you ready for? Emotionally, psychologically, intellectually, practically, and spiritually. Make a decision from a place of awareness, from a place of strength, from a place of maturity. You may need help with people, from people who really, really care for you. And, of course, you also have to ask the big question, and that is, if you stay in the marriage, what is it going to do to you? If you feel that there's really no hope, and absolutely no chemistry, there's no connection, there's no relationship, then your decision might have to go in one direction. But if you feel, for example, that if you guys spend time with each other, if he feels he can open up to you and expose his soul, and you feel that you can trust him and open up to him, maybe with the help of another person in the beginning, maybe interesting things will happen. Put that into consideration as well. So what I say to you is examine maturely all the pros and all the cons. There are pros in getting divorced. You won't have to deal with this. There are also cons in getting divorced. Divorce may be a necessary decision, but it's a very serious decision. Make that decision. It's not an easy decision. And all I can do is bless you, that Hashem should be with you and give you the kaychas, to be able to make the best decision for you and to be able to only grow from the experience and God forbid not surrender to despair and realize whatever decision you make, as long as you know it's the right decision, it will compel you and propel you to ultimately reach an even greater and deeper self-awareness and greater and deeper marriage with this person or another person. Rabbi Jacobson, I'm just I'm just thinking this is probably a lot of information for this Ying Vabel. Yes, and I'm sorry. And I and uh, just want to make sure that she should go for help. I don't know if it's the parents or professional, so somebody could walk yeah. with her. Hope hopefully your parents. I don't I don't know who you are. I don't know your parents, and I don't know maybe the, the parents didn't realize any of this, so may they may not be capable of helping her. I don't know. If your parents could really be here for you, maybe a sibling, maybe an uncle, maybe an aunt, a baba, a father, a mother, a good rav, a good therapist, but make sure somebody who really cares for you and doesn't just want everything to look good for the mishpocha, because that's not, that's kind of going to help you. Another important thing is, you'll forgive me for saying this, till you make this decision, it may be worth considering not to pursue the path of having a child, because then it's much, much more difficult to get divorced. You know, if you really don't want to be in a relationship, I would consider holding back on that also so you can have a little menuchas hanefesh to figure out your options. Okay, before we go to the next question, I just want to go back to the title that we called it, Marriages, Why So Many Marriages Are Failing. If you, Rabbi Jacobson, maybe you can tell us what comes to your desk, what, what are the issues, behaviors, or beliefs that you see that into that can cause the problems of marriage? Excellent question. So I have to, I, I should have, I guess, said this in the beginning. I am not a psychotherapist. I am not a social worker. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a marriage therapist. So I really, I have to qualify myself that I am in no position of being a professional to give people, you know, guidance on their marriage. So why do I speak to you about this? I speak to you about this because I sit among my people. 
and I receive approximately, and I'm not exaggerating now, around 200, close to 200 emails a day. And many of them, not all, but many of them deal with marriage. And I try to help to the best of my ability. I try to delegate whatever I can delegate. One, co- there's so much, as I said, there's no one reason, but I see one common thing that I think it's worth, worth to emphasize. And that's the fact that we have a challenge with communication on a vulnerable level. And I'll tell you what I mean. If I walk into the kitchen, my wife walks into the kitchen, or any spouses, and there's an exchange. Your wife tells you something, your husband tells you something. Often the natural emotion is anger. I'm upset, anger, I'm in a bad mood. But anger is a secondary emotion. In probably 90% of cases, anger is not the real emotion. Anger is covering up a much deeper emotion, which is usually or often pain, loneliness. So what happens with anger is I get upset, I blame the person, you're such a this. I may not say it, but in my head, you're such a this, you're such a this, why am I married to you, you don't understand me, you're so selfish, you're narcissistic, why can you get me, why can you be loving, you always blame me, you're doing this for 50 years, you're doing this for 100 years, you're doing this for 10 years. And what happens? We just drifted away completely. And I was not honest about what's happening to me. Instead of acknowledging my pain, I surrendered to my anger, which is about pointing a finger at you. You know what would help so many marriages? If we could learn to have those ongoing vulnerable conversations. So when your wife or your husband said something... You can now have a conversation and say, you know, I want to share with you how that felt for me. It's about my experience. I'm not blaming you. I'm talking about what I experienced. It may be based on my childhood wounds, based on some trauma, based on some internal struggles that I have already for 45 years or 65 years or 25 years. But instead of talking about you and how bad you are, I talk about what happened to me. You know how healing that becomes? Because basically, we take that very power that could drive us apart from each other, that very toxic force that could create a rift, and we use that as a catalyst to bring us closer by each of us expressing our vulnerable pain in this communication. And what that does is for next time and then for afterwards everything changes. So if we can have much more open, vulnerable conversation, and it's not easy. I don't want to acknowledge my pain. It's much easier for me to say, you're a this, you're a this, you're a that. It's much easier. But it's a cover-up. And ultimately, long-term, it hurts both of us because it erodes. It erodes the trust. And a marriage without trust can't be meaningful or fun. Rabbi Jacobson, I have to be honest with you, my, my, my box is blowing up. I have like 4 million questions here. Are you ready? Let's go. 4 million. Well, you, what do they say? The journey 4 million miles begins with one step. <laughs> you know, we'll be the, we'll be the, no, not Chabad, Shluchim that had the, the, the record of Zoom. We'll do better. We'll do, we'll outdo them now. See that? They had 136 hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My wife made me a delicious iced coffee. Yeah, tell, tell them they can need a jug. My husband does not communicate. My husband does not communicate. He is tuned out. If I try to reach him, he stonewalls. He is a closed book. 
We are married for a long time. This has been a vicious life cycle. He is in a community rabbi leader, operates very differently in public arena where he's well respected. <laughs> no, it's not you, Mrs. Jacobson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. That was fast. That was fast. Actually, my wife is standing near me and laughing. So you're not so far off the truth. Uh, but I'm not sure, was it her or was it my mother-in-law? Just joking. Chas v'shalom. I have a wonderful mother-in-law. God bless her. Yes, first of all, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. This is not easy. And I don't know enough to answer this question from an educated point of view. So I'll just make a few points that might be helpful and might resonate. First of all, some people are suffering very deeply from severe trauma, from mental illness, from personality disorder. Trauma, we know today, sits in the body for years and years. And some people, even fine people, teachers, leaders, rabbis, they're unaware of it. They just learn to live with it. They have developed survival skills. And almost you look at them and we have to have compassion because they are simply incapable. They just don't know about their trauma. And if that's the case, the question is, is there an option? Is there a way of making him aware? In a loving, compassionate way, allowing him the possibility to open himself up to what's happening inside of him. There must be a lot of pain. If he's stonewalling you, and he's completely unmoved, in other words, he's a dead man walking, and yet to the world, he's displaying charisma and passion and love and vitality. There's a terrible dissonance. But the only way you can have compassion on him is if you have compassion on yourself. As I tell my students, there are two ways of dealing with other people's dysfunction. One is judgmental, and the other one is compassion. When I'm judgmental towards you, you close up. When I have compassion towards you, I'm not in denial. I'm not repressing and I'm not naive, but it allows you to open up. But first I have to have compassion on my own pain, my own challenges, and then my attitude can be one of compassion. And that's my question to you. Is there a way, not from a place of anger, not from a place of resentment, and I know it's not easy and I'm very, very sorry because this is a challenge, but from a place of compassion to help him just have a glimpse of what is possible, to understand that maybe he's sitting with a lot and there are people who can help. There are people who don't want to backstab him. They don't want him fired. They want him to be successful. But there are people, there are some real experts who are good with this stuff, and they can help him acknowledge what is sitting on him. Why does he have to detach from you? What is bothering him so deeply? But he has to become aware of it, at least on some level. Is there any opening into his soul? If there is, gewaldic. That's a, a great beginning. The question is, what if not? What if he is so beyond anything that really, really nothing, nothing helps? And then I can just cry with you and say to Hillel, and then you have to ask yourself, you know, what's the serenity prayer? God, help me change the things I can and help me accept 
the things I can change and help me have the wisdom to know the difference. If there's really no room, no opening for change, then it really becomes another question. Can you deal with it? And how much of this can you deal with? These these ideas are challenging to have open, vulnerable conversations. And usually, like you mentioned, it's usually hard for the person himself or herself, yeah, yeah, yeah to yeah. be aware. Of it. Especially if he's a rav, if he's a rav and he's a leader, and he may be a rosh Hashiva, Again, I don't know who we're talking about. So understand that maybe for twenty, thirty years, he has developed surviving skills of leadership. He probably guides people who come to him and say they don't have emotions. <laughs> he probably guides them based on what he read. And you know what my hunch is? My hunch is that probably inside, he may be a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man. Maybe soft as butter melting in a frying pan, but completely locked up. Completely unaware of the pain that he may have from the age of four years old, where he went into hiding, and he never came out of hiding. That may be, again, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm just speculating, and I, I'm no prophet, but I'm just speculating, this may be, this may be the case. And then, if he can have somebody who can really display real compassion and understanding, not knock him down, because then he'll just close up even more. But really, help him become aware that you don't have to be miserable. The whole world is not out to get you. There is a way of living life with simcha. The Rebbeinu Shalom, God does not want miserable Jews. He wants people who are lebedic, unfreilich, and suck the marrow out of life, who can come home and exude vitality and love and joy and chius and exuberance. And his teaching will be transformed because we only really teach what we have inside. Yes, we can have facades and masks, but people sense the energy consciously or unconsciously. If somebody could communicate this to him without judgment, which you can only do if you don't judge yourself, by the way, because if I'm busy judging myself, I do that to everybody else. Only when you have compassion for yourself can you have compassion for others, because we all have trauma and dysfunction. Then I believe, at least maybe I hope, I don't want to sound like a helpless optimist, but I've seen this happen, that we can create a crack and, and his vulnerability can emerge. What I, what I tell people is every person has to have another person who can he can sit and talk. It doesn't have to be a coach. It doesn't have to be a therapist. And again, not everybody needs the right. help. But you need one place where you can be vulnerable to vulnerable. yourself. And if it's hard, you can start with a pen and paper. Yeah. You yeah. sit down and say, what are the things I do not want to talk about? I just want to say something Ushi told me. We were together two weeks ago at a Shabbaton. There were maybe 600 people there. It was basically parents struggling with children who have left Yiddishkeit and often left normalcy altogether. Sunday morning, Reb Usher comes over to me. I say, no. And these were his words. He says, why can't all of us be honest with each other all the time and experience in our daily lives the honesty that we encountered over the last last weekend? Because the level of honesty and vulnerability 
was enthralling. And remember, you had the echte chsidische yidin, satme mit bubev, mit vizhnitz, mit labavitch, mit ger, mit rizhin, mit kloisenburg, mit sans, mit puppe, litvische, yeshivische, of all stripes, what you call modern orthodox, this side, that side, this nusach, yena nusach, nakdishach, nekadesh, Keser, 12 chalas for Lecha Mishnah, 20 zmiris on Shabbos, 16 dvar toiris Friday night, 24 Shabbos, every type and stripe. And yet, they have all been broken. They have been broken by their children not turning out the way they dreamt. And the vulnerability, right? Am I, am I right? The vulnerability was unbelievable. And the streimel and the Barcelino hat and the cap and the no hat the kibazu, didn't make a difference. You had the Syrians with the Yemen. Every literally everybody was there. And not one complaint. And not one complaint. Not one complaint. Usually, I, I go to a lot of events, at least pre-corona. The chicken, the food, my room. My de- <laughs> you know, Jews in hotels—they're at their best, right? But over there, they were united by a cause. You know what I learned from it? You know, we all look, we all walk around the streets of Muncie, Lakewood, Williamsburg, Crown Heights, Borough Park, Yerushalayim, B'nai Brak, London, wherever it is, thinking, Ich bin der einzige Meshugana. You know, I'm the only Tzedret Meshugana who has all these problems. Everyone today, trust me, everybody has their vulnerability and people are craving honesty. Don't be afraid. I'm talking to the men. For the women, it's much easier. So it's the way God made them. Don't be afraid of honest communication. People don't need the macho response from you. Trust me. You can go straight to the MS. That's why we have the shirts on the night. This is for, this is for the real people. They want to get, let's get, get real. We're vulnerable. Let's, We're vulnerable. Let's, get, let's get, get real. And you know what? Today it's all coming out. Today it's all coming out. Look at the numbers. Okay, let's go. We have live questions. I have 100 more questions. Let's go live. You're on. You said 4 million. It went down to 100? You know, I'm glad that we solve most of the problems. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Let's go. We have, now the questions are getting more intense and deeper, and there's a lot more live questions, but I want, I want to really cover some of these. This is from an email. I'm trapped in a dead, loveless marriage. Had, I've had many marriage counseling, lots for 34 years together. Husband is a narcissist and emotionally unavailable. We are in our 60s and 70s, respectfully, and we have one child left in Shaduchim. So we don't feel like we could separate it. There have been no int- no intimacy for 11 years. And there is any benefit in staying in such a marriage. I have built a separate life with good friends. My husband doesn't really have close friends and tries to get me to act like his mother. Would it be okay financially if we, we would be okay financially if we split? Oh, wow. The answer that I would give you is as follows. I do not believe, once again, that anybody in the world is entitled or has the permission or the authority to tell you whether to stay in this marriage or not to stay in this marriage. This is a very deep, mature, and personal and painful decision that you have to make because both sides come with a lot of challenges as you articulated so eloquently in this email. But I do want to delineate, I want to outline different points that I think can help perhaps create perspective for you to make a decision from a healthy, authentic, and place of strength and inner inner resilience. And that is, marriage has different benefits. 
Of course, the first and foremost great benefit of marriage is two people become one. We're not lonely. We share a life. One plus one equals one, as the Torah says, But there's a lot of other benefits in marriage. There's a certain stability in marriage. There's a certain predictability in a married life. There's a certain structure that exists in a marriage. In your case, keeping the marriage intact means that the kinderlach, the eneklach, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren come to a unified home for Hanukkah parties and Purim parties and Sheva Brachas and Bar Mitzvahs and Friday night meals and Shabbos meals and popping for a Sunday and a Monday. And that's amazing. There's a special machas and delight. So what I say to you is make a very deep and mature decision and see. What are the pros? What are the cons? There are pros for staying in this marriage. Even though you say he's emotionally dead, he's narcissistic, he wants you to be his mother. But there are, I'm sure, pros in staying in this marriage because you're spins in this marriage. And I'm sure there's pros of staying in this marriage even after your child gets married, of you being that quintessential Bubba and Elta Bubba, the matriarch of a family where there's a husband and a wife and you could nurture your children and you may say, you know what? For my daughters and my sons and my Eneklach, I want them to have and feel there's a wholesome home even though I know the truth. And you that may be a top priority for you. There are also cons of staying in this marriage. It may be too painful for you. I cannot tell you what outweighs what. You have to make a mental list. You may need the help of an excellent person who can just help you process your emotions, process your pain, and then make a decision. You may want to stay in this marriage despite all the challenges, or you may say, you know what? The pain of being here is just too much. My kids are more or less fine. They'll be able to work it out. And you know what? I don't think anybody can judge you. The Rebbeinu Shalom won't judge you. And whatever you decide, I can bless you and wish you it should be with, with tremendous Hatzlacha. But make this decision from a place of inner strength, inner awareness, not from victimhood and not from weakness. And not only a short-term decision or impulsive. It should be a long-term understanding of the pros and the cons and realizing that every choice will be imperfect. Of course, maybe as an optimist, I have to add, there's always the hope that I hope maybe somebody, without judging him with compassion, can maybe open him up to the fact that he doesn't want to die a closed heart, a closed soul, an unexamined life. It's painful to live a life of denial. And maybe at this point, he'll be ready to sit with somebody who's a real expert and can deal with 70-year-olds who have had their hearts on lockdown for uh, seven decades before the corona. Rabbi Jacobs, I'm getting a lot of texts about mental health. Let's try to cover some segment about mental health because it's obviously a big topic. I'm going to read questions together. I think they're similar, and let's try to really... All those people texting me, this is basically the, the question. I know it's not a mental health segment tonight, but I am living with a spouse with mental issues. What are some words to help me out? That's the first question. The second question is, my spouse is not emotionally available for me and the kids. I try to manage it all by myself, but sometimes feels impossible. How do I continue this work? It was very hard for me last week to listen when I was told to only give, 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 and not to expect anything back in return. Yeah. Okay. So, of course... All the books you'll read about marriage, 
all sessions, workshops, webinars, seminars, advice from top professionals. You can read Sue Johnson and Gutman and all the gurus and the coaches, and they may be exceptional. And you will follow the trajectory of what a good marriage looks like and what a bad bad marriage looks like. Because today we have research in the last 40 years of what good marriages look like, what bad marriages look like. They used to think that they look very different. Today we know that the same issues that exist in good marriages exist in bad marriages, at least in most cases. The difference is only the reactions, how the couple deals with it. So let's say you follow all the rules, but you know what? It's not working. It's just not working. The results are not there. And after everything's said and done, you just can't get yourself to do what you're supposed to do. As you said, yeah, I can't just give and give and give. And very often we now have to identify if we have one of these three red flags. Mental illness, personality disorder, severe trauma. When somebody has one of these three things, they may simply be incapable of responding the way a healthy person responds. Now you say we all have trauma, and we all have some personality disorder, and we all have some mental illness, and it's true, we all have wounds. I still don't know the person who doesn't have wounds. Part of Bria is our soul comes down and it has its tikkunim to make. But, you know, there is illness and there is illness. So that's really what we have to distinguish. Sometimes a person is just so paralyzed and incapable. Now, if this is caught in the beginning of a marriage... It's critical to immediately get help because a lot of these things can be dealt with. Real professionals can deal with a lot of forms of trauma, anxiety, borderline personality, bipolar, OCD. Not easy, but they can be dealt with. If it's 20 years down the line, 15 years down the line, 25 years down the line, now it's much more severe because now it's not just the original problem. It's all the problems that have piled on to the original problem that made the marriage dysfunctional. But if the person suffering from the trauma or the personality disorder or mental illness, and this is the key, is ready to take responsibility. If I could say, I have a lot, a lot of pain inside of me. As I know, a borderline personality who told me, I have a lot, a lot of pain inside of me. And it's not my husband's fault. It's not my husband. I am sick. I got serious problems and I'm ready to take responsibility and get help. Wow, that's a big deal. So if a person is ready to go to that stage and get the help they need and take responsibility for their lives and not just point finger to their husband or to their wife, you are the culprit for eternity. Really acknowledge that it's my challenge and my problem and I have a spouse who will support me. That is a wonderful moment of of vulnerability that can really help the marriage grow. So if we are dealing with a spouse that is ready for that, ready to get help, there's a lot that can be done. Not always, not in every situation, but a lot can be done. The question, of course, is if you're describing somebody who's not open to any of this, they're just not open. The pain is too deep. The denial is too profound. And then I go back to the serenity prayer. You have to make a distinction between those things you can change or you can at least support somebody else working on change and those things that I simply cannot change. And I have to be able to accept. And then I have to ask myself, could I accept this? Could I live with it? What are the pros of living with it? What are the cons of living with it? And whatever your decision is, it's not an easy one. 
God will, God will be here with you to make that decision, but make sure you take care of yourself. Make sure you don't blame yourself. Make sure you eat well. Forgive me. Make sure you exercise. Make sure you spend time with yourself, maybe early in the morning. Do what you need to fill up your soul because you need stamina and vigor to be able to be in situations that are very difficult and challenging where a person is not ready to go for help. You need extra energy, extra vitality, and do not feel guilty and do not allow people who don't know about your life to give you opinions to dictate how you live. You take advice from people who know the sensitivities, appreciate the issues, and are here for you. Jacobson, we have a bunch of live questions and uh, we have some vulnerable questions coming up. Um, let's do the first the first live question. Go. You're on. Is that me? That's you. Hi. Um, Hi. Okay. This is, it's hard because I I'm in public and it's a lot of people. Um, so I live with a husband who's, who's not religious the last eight years out of 15. Um, it's been a roller coaster. And lately I've kind of had some peace around it. And I do understand that it's kind of, I don't know. I feel Seattle's my, it's where Hashem wants me to be. Um, and a lot of, I wasn't here in last week's class, but a lot of, that idea of taking care of myself and finding my place, my support, my comfort, and really just taking, like, it, it's not my job to take care of him. Um, that being said, there's a lot of loneliness that comes from this kind of relationship. Um, I appreciate everything I do get from him. It is still a relationship, but there's not a lot. It's, and I, I just, what kind of suggestions, what do you do about that loneliness? It's like a really deep spiritual loneliness. Like, what do you do about it? Just, I just want to jump in and say the religious part is one issue, but the, the loneliness, I've got about 10 of these texts that they're in a marriage and they just feel lonely. I'm just saying the religion part is just another step of it. That's all. And, and you're still married, right? You're married. Still married. Yeah. Wow. And can you talk to him about this? Can you talk to him about this loneliness? I, I try not to bring up things. I mean, I yeah, I can talk to him about it, but there's nothing. I, I can't bring up things that he doesn't do right, because then it's like he fails, you know, that, that insecurity. I just in general, it's what I kind of. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I like mean, you don't I, give me enough attention. When I get, I get. Like if we go out, we go out. If and when. And I am grateful for when I get it. Right. No, my, but my real question is sometimes a person is just alienated from religion for whatever reason, their reasons. But sometimes it's not just an alienation from religion. It's an alienation from responsibility, from a relationship, from connection, from loyalty, from dedication, from responsibility. That's all a very different, it's all of the above. Okay. So it must have taken a lot of courage to stay in this relationship and stay in this marriage. It is. Right. It does. Okay. So this is a very, very profound choice that you made. And I guess you considered the pros and the cons, the sacrifices that you're making. 
And what I could what I could suggest, obviously from a distance, without knowing the details and the characters, and suggested with a lot of humility and with a lot of empathy, and that is to quote the words of David Hamelach. Ki avi v'imi azavuni v'hashem yasveni in Tehillim chapter 27. My mother and father have abandoned me and God took me in. And basically what he's teaching us is that sometimes there are situations where the regular support structure, the regular safety net is non-existent. As a child, your mother and father are supposed to be there for you. They were not there for him. They threw him out of the house. He was considered an illegitimate child, the Medr says. And that's when he developed the deepest relationship with Hashem. It's so, so important that you find comfort in your relationship with yourself, with your soul, with with God above all. Because the one who understands you most, who knows your neshama, who created you, who sent you into this world, and who ultimately created a lot of the circumstances of your life, is the Rebbeinah Shalaylam is Hashem. And I think it's so important for you to have the most intimate, open, vulnerable, naked, beer, exposed relationship with God, with yourself, with people you can trust, people who can really listen to you and you could listen to them in the most vulnerable, vulnerable way. I think it's also extremely important for you to be able to have a space where you can express all of your emotions, where you can express all the pain, all the anguish, all the disappointment. And you know, I think there's an element of grief. Grief counselors always speak about the fact when we lose something, there is denial, there is anger, there is bargaining, there's grief, and there's acceptance. Denial is, eh, it's not real, it's not Right? Anger is, I'm angry. Bargaining is, I'll do this, it'll be half, it'll be 50%. Then there's grief. There's realizing that my dream will just not be materialized. And then there is the last and deepest place. It doesn't deny the grief, but it's really understanding and saying, I am not a victim and I will not surrender to despair. God sent me on a mission into these circumstances. Somehow, this is the place where I can reach my deepest potential, where I can grow most, and where I can bring light into places that only I can bring light into those places. Why I was sent here, I don't know. What's exactly the purpose and the meaning, I don't know. But if this is where you feel you should be, it's so important for you to be able to embrace the pain, to be able to embrace the loneliness, to be able to cry through the loneliness, and then to say, I'm going to look at my loneliness with my eyes. I'm going to stare it down, and I'm going to say, right here, right now, I am going to live my life to the fullest and live in the most powerful, meaningful, purposeful, an animated way. And I think for people like you, and all of us who share these types of pains, it's very important to spiritually fortify yourself. Whether it's 
tuning into certain classes that give you chizuk, reading books, following certain hobbies, taking walks, exercising, listening to music, writing journals, writing, speaking, communicating, joining a group, teaching others, listening to others. But I think it's a davening, learning, getting involved with an organization, creating something of a, whatever it is. But I think it's important for you to be able to create a real productive life for yourself and to spiritually and emotionally fortify yourself. Well, powerful, Robert Jacobson. Um, we have more just, to, sorry, you just wanna... to throw in, um, there was different points that I would try to daven for him and I would get disappointed. I'm at the point that I don't. I just daven for myself. And is that okay? Is that a good focus? Uh, okay. So to daven for yourself is obviously awesome. But what I would say is there's two ways of davening for him. One way is davening for him is I'm davening for him and hopefully I'm going to get a call at night. He's going to say, yeah, I'm starting to keep Shabbos. Yes, I'm going to start learning daf yoyme. Yes, I'm going to start eating kosher. Yes, I'm going to put on a yamulka. And then it's very disappointing. But I think there's another form of davening for him. And that is his soul. He also has an ashama, and his soul is in exile. He probably went through some stuff. He probably, you probably know, I don't know. So if you could just pray that Hashem should be able to be there with him. Do you have children with him? Yeah. Okay. So he's the father of your children. So I think it's important for you, for yourself also, to pray that Hashem should be able to help his soul. His soul is also a piece of Hashem and it's trapped. It's trapped. And as much pain as he caused you, he also caused his own soul. Remember that. He's not content when when you when you uh, when you're alienated from your spouse, you're alienated from yourself. So I would just pray that you know Hashem should 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 be there with him and and one day help him open up and try to evoke that compassion, not compassion for what he did, and not compassion for everything and all the pain that you experienced, but simply compassion for the pain that you have that sits in you. And compassion for the pain that his soul has. So you're not overlooking anything. You're not being naive. You're not saying, eh, it's not so bad. But can you just feel compassion for that pain inside of you? And then I think you'll be able to feel compassion for the pain that must be unbearable inside of him that causes him to be so trapped and closed off. I think that type of prayer will not deny you from the dignity that you need and deserve. Okay. Thank you. You get my point? You get it? Yeah. Because I, I get so disappointed. Like I dive in and I don't know what I'm diving for. So. Yeah, yeah. Listen, prayer exists on many dimensions, you know. Sometimes we feel davening is like a vending machine. You know, you put in a dollar and the, the potato chip, the tuna sandwich comes out, the potato chip comes out. But that's not always how davening, what davening is. Davening is really a connection. It's a relationship with the source of life. It's a relationship with the source of infinity. Uh, you know what davening really is? Uh, I, sh- I think I should say this. I know this is about marriage, but uh, <laughs> a lot of marriage is about davening. So uh, you know what? The, the word tefillah, we don't even know what it means. Many people don't know what it means. In Bereshis, y- Yaakov tells Yosef before his death, Ra'oi fanecha loy I never imagined to see your face, right? Lehispalel, like 
Lehit blabesh in Hebrew means to get dressed. Lehit rachetz is to bathe. Lehit palel is, what's lehit palel? From the word filalti. To imagine, to start imagining. What's the connection to tefillah? Tefillah is imagining my life from the divine perspective. Looking at myself the way Hashem sees me. Connecting my inner core to the source of all infinity and seeing myself and imagining what my life is capable of looking like from God's infinite perspective. In other words, seeing myself in a whole new extraordinary fashion. That's what tefillah is. It's alignment with that. And I think when we do that, it's not that necessarily something changes the next day. It's that we become new people. So everything changes because I'm not wearing the same glasses anymore. Okay. Jacob, let's go to the next question. We're loaded over here. Only since, since, since Ricky was so vulnerable and open, I'll try the same thing. Here we go. You ready? It's a second marriage question. So I'm, I'm, I'm second marriage and I could relate to the question a lot so I could feel it. Very important. <clears throat> we have a huge struggle coming between us in second marriage. We love each other very deeply. But we have severe friction in what the priority in the second marriage in terms of loyalty, dedication of time, financial priorities, and in general. At the end of the day, what is the priority? A spouse, sustaining shalom bias, or children from previous marriages who also need their parents? This includes children from previous marriages who live far away and requires one spouse to travel, which hinders on the marriage. Therapists have tried to help, but it's very difficult and it's pushing us apart, preventing the oneness you're referring to. How could you minimize the severe friction? Would you really? We really would appreciate your much-needed advice, Rabbi Jacobson. Okay, it's a very serious question, and again, without knowing all the details, I'm just going to throw out some ideas that hopefully can resonate and at least be somewhat helpful. The first thing is you have to acknowledge that there is a serious challenge here. Every second marriage, even. In the best circumstances is difficult. Rabbi Asher just told us that he himself experienced a second marriage, and he, if he wants to elaborate, he'll elaborate. But there are serious challenges that come with it, and the first, foremost thing is to acknowledge it, to be able to understand that a lot of things will trigger some toxic emotions. And I'll specify a few things that I've heard from people, and forgive me for being blunt. You know, there is the element of comparisons to the first marriage. There's the element of, why should I care about your bratty, snobby, disgusting kids raised by your first spouse who was sick and dysfunctional and mentally ill and narcissistic and compulsive and codependent plus an alcoholic and a gambler. And now I got to take care of these kids. Now, of course, we're nice. We don't speak like that. But I'm talking about what goes on in our brain. And then there is the issues of guilt. Am I guilty for the problems in the first marriage? Then there's the question, was this a mistake? What do I need this for? It's such a headache. So all these things are constantly coming up and it's so important to be aware of it and not to judge yourself. And I'll go back to Midas HaRacham and compassion again. It's important to have compassion for what you're feeling, for what you're experiencing. Just have compassion. Don't judge it. Don't deny it. Don't be naive about it. Don't repress it. And don't be dictated by it. Just have compassion for it. You know what Midas HaRachimim does? You know what compassion does? 
It opens up things. It opens us up to a deeper level of awareness. The Balatanya writes in Torah, er, Parshas Vayetze, we say in Davening every day, Avinu of harachamon hamirachem rachem naalenu v'sein belibenu bina lahavinu lahaskelishmoya lilma the lalamadlishma v'lasla kamkol v'hayrinenu b'says. Why do we use the term rachmonas three times? Avinu of harachamon hamirachem rachem naalenu, and he says, when I am critical of people and of myself, I close up. When I have compassion on myself and on others, I allow them to open up. Rachamim allows people to have das, lahovin, ulahaske, lishmoya, to be able to listen to somebody else, to learn new things, to perceive, to discern. Have compassion for your own pain. Have compassion for the pain of your spouse, number one. Number two, whenever there are struggles with children, especially when they're not biologically your own children, what is most important in such a case is to cement the marriage. And I'll tell you why. You will not have a solution for all of your husband's children from the previous marriage. He will not have a solution for all of your children from the previous marriage. But you know what? If your marriage is not powerful, all those problems will become much more toxic and much more destructive. If your marriage is tight and powerful, you will create a keli, you will create a fortress that will allow both of you to contain the challenges. You may not have a solution for all of them. These kids are going to have to figure out some stuff on their own, and it's not always going to be easy. But your marriage, if it's connected, if it's tight, it will create something very healthy, healthy in the household that will allow both of you together to contain the pain and to contain the challenges and to contain the blessings and the opportunities. Which brings us to the next point. I heard this from a woman who uh, her husband died. She remarried to another man. He had a lot of children from the first marriage. She had a lot of children from the first marriage. And I asked her, I happened to know the family, and I said, I, how do you, do you treat his kids as well as you treat your own? I was, I was amazed by her answer, by the honesty. She said, it's impossible. I can't. It's not my kids. I can't. But you know what? What happens in my heart and what happens in my actions are not always the same thing. I work on myself never to do anything that's unfair and to ask myself, if that child would have been mine, would I say these words and would I do those things? I make sure that in my machshava, dibur, and maisa, my thoughts, words, and actions, I behave in the most just, loving, compassionate, and decent way. To say that they're really mamish like my kids, she said, I'm not going to lie to you. It was so uh, refreshing to hear that. And you know what? She and her husband raised an exceptional family, not without challenges, but an exceptional, an amazing family. So I say to you, if you guys can have this open communication, if you could make sure your shalom bias is powerful and your marriage is cemented, then you will have ongoing conversations of what each of you can help do to help your own children, to help the children of your other spouse. But it's important to remember how sensitive this is. You cannot tell your husband, oh, you go take care of your bratty kids. Or tell your wife, you go take care of those dysfunctional kids. Because that's very hurtful. If you love me, you have to be able to be sensitive to my children because they're part of me. 
So even though they're not yours, it's so important to be sensitive. And you may need a therapist or somebody else to whom you can really, you know, unravel and express all of your emotions, whatever they be. But in the marriage, you want to be sensitive to what means so much to the other person. It's like my wife's sister. Of course it's not my sister, but it's my wife's sister. So I have to display that sensitivity, certainly when it comes to your wife's child or your husband's your husband's uh, child. The last thing I would suggest is, and I've suggested this to others, and I can also help with this because I know quite a few people, is find a couple that experienced a second marriage, brought in children from the previous marriages, and you see that they are beautiful people and they somehow have developed a routine and have developed a method. And speak to them, consult them. Consult the woman, consult the men, they'll be happy to give you guidance and perspectives. And there are quite a few families who did this well. One of such one of such a couple told me, the husband and the wife, I asked them, what helped you? And they said, we made sure two or three times a year to go away for nine, ten days and make sure our marriage is so tight. Because that allowed us to come back and to deal with the challenges of both families. So that advice I would also pass on to you. Wow, Rabbi Jacobson, powerful. For not being a therapist, I think you got most of the answers right. Okay, we have more questions. You want to add something from your experience? Um, I'm going to add from You're my comfortable. experience is that the marriage has to be strong like a rock because it's not only being challenged, as a regular marriage is being challenged, right. it's being challenged from the kids, and the kids actually, in a, in a weird way, try to, try to just self-destroy the marriage by testing the love yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact of the matter is, a step parent can never love a kid that's not biological to the same degree. But um, I don't use the word fake it to make it, but you, you have to do it for the love of your spouse because the spouse is so much. If your, your marriage is a rock, that's the only way. Otherwise, it's like it's a... and, and, and what, what and, and I have to say, don't take things personal. There will be a teenager in your spouse from one, one of your spouse's children who will tell you one night, You're not my mother. How dare you tell me what to do? And if you take it personal, if you take it personal, and then you start blaming your husband, then we lost the plot. It's important to have compassion for your pain, because it's painful to hear that. You're having mysterious nefesh for this child, and she tells you, you're not even my mother, get out of my house. (laughs) Get out of my house. Of course, she's experiencing the pain of not having a mother not having a biological mother. So it's so important to make decisions from a place of compassion and confidence, not from a place of weakness and fear and insecurity and egotism. This is, I think, very, very important. Reb Asher, am I right? Spot on. One other word I was going to add on it, that we have another live course already on, I want to get to it is that when it, the, the biological child is chutzpah or rough to the step-parent, it's because their, their, their relationship with their actual parent is not good, and they give it off on the step-parent to hurt the parent. Of course. You're the only one who's listening to them. Their real parent has cut off, so <laughs> you, you become the target. It's a compliment. It's very, it's, it's very, very, uh, it's very, very pain. It's, it's, it's painful. You have to have compassion here. It's not an easy situ. It's not an easy situation. You know what? I look at these couples who have done it. I take off my hat. I am, I am inspired, not just inspired. I am in awe of what's, what I have seen 
with what some of them have done, the selflessness, the commitment, and I should say the maturity. They are so worked out. It's incredible. A good clap to Hashanis. Okay, next live question. You're on. Finally, we got it. Let's go. Hi, can you hear me? Finally, we hear you. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask, what is the proper Hashkafic perspective one should have if a child's marriage has ended in divorce, despite his or her best efforts to keep the marriage intact, including therapy and maybe the partner's unwillingness to participate and subsequent departure from Yiddish type? Was this not Bashert? What's the best way for the parents to process the situation, especially if they were involved in the Shidduch dating and engagement and may have seen red flags? I don't want to sound like a scratched, but they used to call it a scratched record, right? Today it's a scratched CD, but even CDs are uh, are uh, are already uh, not so popular. But I don't want to sound re- repetitious, but I think it's extremely important to know two things. Number one, there is an element of grief that is necessary. It's not easy. We put in so much work into raising a child. I don't have to explain to a mother or mothers what type of work that is before birth and then after birth and all the years of raising them physically and emotionally and psychologically and spiritually and through school and yeshiva and then finally the dating process and the wedding and the sheva brachas, you know? And it's, it's not, I don't have to explain this to parents, the blood and the sweat and the tears and the love and the finances, every fiber of our neshama that goes in to be mechanach our children. And then the world comes crumbling down and what seemed like such a promising future is not here. This warrants tears. This warrants a lot of, I I could cry even when I'm saying this, it warrants a lot of empathy, a lot of compassion for the child who went through the divorce and for the people who are affected by it. And that's the first step, you know? That's the first step. It's not about judgment. It's really about, especially as you said, they did whatever they can. They went to therapy. They tried to help. The other person refused. I don't know. Again, I don't know the details. And certainly it's not my, uh, it's not in my authority to be able to point a finger or not point a finger. So that's number one. And it's important to be able to communicate on that level. And tears are certainly very normal here. And then I think, together with that, and completely not exclu- not mutually exclusive, is the concept of knowing that every destination and every journey in life is not a random coincidence, a random mutation, just a mistake, you know, bad mazel, different cookies crumble in different ways. The Baal Shem Tov has an unbelievable interpretation. The Chazal say, Rishayim Meleim Charotes, which means those who are spiritually broken are filled with regrets. Everybody explains it because they do a lot of nasty things, so they always regret it because their conscience doesn't let them rest, so they're always filled with remorse. You know, they're always saying, I'm sorry. They insult you and then they say, I'm sorry. The Baal Shem Tov said it means something much deeper. Rishayim, people who are not aware of how connected they are to the divine, are always filled with regrets. They're always regretting their choices in life. If only I would have not allowed him to date. If only I would have checked into this. If only I would have blah. If, 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 if only everything would have been avoided. He says, but really, we have to realize that it's far beyond of our, far beyond our choices. We do what we can, but ultimately there's so many things outside of our control. So many things that happen to our children. So many things our children go through. And yes, 
we deny, we get angry, we bargain, but then we have to grieve. And then we have to say, you know what? Somehow your neshama needed this journey. For me, the greatest inspiration for this is my namesake, Yosef. All his dreams came crumbling down. 17-year-old, most handsome, beautiful boy was being sent off to the best yeshiva in the world in Eretz Yisrael, would have gotten the best shidduch. Ends up as a slave in Egypt and as a prisoner for 12 years. The entire trajectory of his life destroyed for eternity, you would think. And yet when he faces his brothers, he says, you did not sell me. I am not a victim of your bad choices. God has sent me to save an entire nation from famine. That's the Jewish attitude. The Jewish attitude is, I'm thrown into a pit, and it feels like I'm being buried. Really, I was planted. I was not buried, I was planted. That's, I think, an attitude that is authentic, it empowers, it invigorates. Most importantly, it propels us to continue growing and maximizing our potentials in life and pursuing the dreams, the yearnings, and the aspirations that we really cherish for ourselves and our loved ones. Okay, I think we'll go to the next question. So this is a question of the person himself, so I think uh, we got a little opening already. Juggling Shalom Bayes and Chinuch with five kids that each of each of them have their own needs and different needs, and it's a great challenge for me. And he says he finds himself staying at work, avoiding dealing with all that's going on at home. I know it's not a mahalach, but it's too stressful for me. Where can I start with this? Wow, okay. <laughs> this is an important question. So let me say this. It seems like you have to deal with your shalom bias and you have to deal with educating your children. And both of them are challenging. So I want to say, even if we're having disagreements with our spouse about how to educate our children, probably, not in all cases, but probably in most cases, the harm that we cause our children by our internal strife is much greater than any harm that we will cause them by disagreements about their education or other disagreements. For parents to have disagreements is normal. For these disagreements to grow into big arguments and fights is not something that we should pursue. We should try to avoid it, but it happens very often. But when we alienate ourselves from each other, when we drift away, when there's no relationship, when I'm staying in the office because I don't want to face my spouse, the harm that does that, that, that does to children is really, really unfair. And it's worse than any other harm. And children pick it up. When a husband doesn't like the wife, a wife doesn't like her husband, when there's mistrust, when there's inner conflict, when there's a lack of respect, it really it creates a decomposition in the home. So it's so, so important to be able to face this. I know it's easy to stay in the office, and it's easy to run to Mincha and Mayriv and a Dafyoy Mishir and a Mishnabruashir and to join Dirshu. And going to Shiurim and learning is not just incredible, but it's oxygen for a Jewish home and it's vital for a Jewish home, but not as an escape from the relationship. <laughs> Rather, as something that will strengthen the relationship. The Rambam says, it's an incredible piece in Rambam, based on a Mishnah. 
At the end of Hilchis Avodas Yom HaKippurim, the Rambam says, the Kohen Gadol went out of the Holy of Holies, he put on the golden garments, he finished the Avoid, he says he took off the holy garments, he put on his regular garments, and then he would go home. And the commentators ask, what's the halacha? The Rambam is not a history book, it's a halacha book. What's the halacha that he would go home? Of course, at the end of Yom Kippur, he goes home, where should he go, bowling? He should go for pizza? He should go to the arcades? Where should he go? At the night of Yom Kippur, he goes home. Why is that a halacha? And one of the explanations is, I heard from my Rebbe, he says, that's the greatest halacha. Because after Yom Kippur, the height of Yom Kippur, the holy of holies, I'm going to go home, my wife is going to tell me take out the garbage. <laughs> my wife by the way, I was just in the holy of holies, I brought atonement for Klal Yisrael, I'm now going to go deal with my wife. Then there was no Yom Kippur. How do we know Yom Kippur was Yom Kippur? If you go home, you got to take it home. Ain't Kiddush alabamakim su'uda. You don't make Kiddush and have the meal somewhere else. The Kiddush has to be in the place of the meal. So I say to you, I know it's hard, I know it's stressful, but the stress that's being caused long term from this alienation from your spouse is much worse. You have to deal with it. Go home, develop trust. Maybe you guys have to take some walks, cement your marriage. If you need outside help, get outside help. That's why we have Coach Menachem for CPR. And uh, work on it. And then together, you'll create a unified front to help the children. I don't mean front as in a war zone, but I mean a unified effort to be able to be there for the children. Even if there's disagreements, nishkeferlech. Disagreements that come in an atmosphere of trust is fine. I want you to know just an interesting statistic from some of the real good research about marriage. 70% of disagreements in marriages endure forever, even in the best marriages. Meaning, when you were 25 years old, you had a disagreement with your spouse, 70% of those disagreements will continue when you're both 90 and 95, respectively. They will not be resolved. 70%. And that's not a problem. That doesn't make it a bad marriage. On the contrary, what makes it a bad marriage is when the disagreement becomes a fight and a conflict and blame, and I can't trust you. There'll be disagreements, that's fine, as long as you're talking, you're communicating, and you could respect the fact that you have different perspectives. Okay, Rabbi Jacobson, more questions. This is more the general question, we're going a little backwards, but people asking. Somebody texted me tonight, is Lubavitcher Rebbe's wedding anniversary, is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so perfect. Well, Babacher Rebbe's wedding anniversary, 1920, 1928 in Warsaw, the 14th of Kislev. Yes, <laughs> that's true. The question <laughs> How do is you like, know that? How do you know that? Somebody just texted me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, MS. And, they, they, and they, they had a good marriage. They unfortunately didn't have children, but I saw they had a good marriage. Now, you know, I'm going to tell you something. I heard this from his doctor, his cardiologist. He's a Jew in Chicago. His name is Dr. Ira Weiss. Geschmack and I heard Dr. Ira Weiss said that he was once discussing with the Lubavitcher Rebbe his schedule. The Rebbe had suffered a terrible, massive heart attack in the middle of Akafish Shmini 1977. They didn't think he will make it. It was a massive, he said it was, it was the highest level. But the Rebbe made it out and, and lived for quite another few years till 94 and with full stamina. So he was going through the Rebbe's schedule of what he does. And Dr. Weiss, I heard from Dr. Weiss, the Rebbe said when he comes home, and sometimes that would be five in the morning, his wife always stays up. 
his wife would never go to sleep till he came home. And the Rebbe said every evening he makes sure to come home and they have a cup of tea together for 20 minutes or 30 minutes and they, they shmooze, they talk every single day. So Dr. Ira Weiss was discussing what he could cut from the Rebbe's schedule, cut this, cut that, cut that. And then the Rebbe said to him, this do not cut out of the schedule because this is for me very, very precious. He said, it's similar to the preciousness that I have of fulfilling the mitzvah of putting on tefillin. And I thought that was incredible because uh, the Rebbe's tefillin campaign, he wanted every Jew to put on tefillin. It was one of the most precious things for him. The sign of a Chabadnik is that he's driving somebody crazy to put on tefillin, right? But, it, but he understood. He was, he was barely home and he was overworked. But the 20 minutes he had with his wife, a cup of tea, was so precious because I guess it was the time that they just connected. And I think in each of our lives, it is so important to be able to spend that time, to carve out time every day, maybe 20 minutes, but carve out time in which you can just share, not judge and not point fingers, but just connect, reignite that uh, that connection. Next question. I just remembered that. I thought it was moving. We're getting a lot more questions, but I want to jump because it's a very basic question. I think everybody listening is, could definitely relate to this. What about a marriage that isn't in crisis, that just the love is not there currently? Busy with kids, busy with work, getting yeah. into a lot of day-to-day. What do you suggest would help these marriages to best to reignite yeah. the love? Very I told big. you. Yeah, that's why I started off. If I don't speak to my brother, or you don't speak to your brother for three months, it's not good. You should speak to your brother less than three months. But you know what? If we meet three months later at a Malava Malka, we'll go back to where we were three months ago. It's not a problem. Nothing happened. It's not like he doesn't trust me anymore. I don't trust him. And the same is true with a friend. Same is true with a sibling. Same is true with a business partner. With a spouse, here's the deal. If you didn't speak to your spouse for three months, you went on a business trip, you come back three months later, it's not the same person anymore. This relationship is completely in a different place. Let's hope it can survive. And the reason is because you're dealing with two people who are essentially different. In many ways, they're opposites. The Balatanya writes in the Torah, masculinity is water, femininity is fire. Fire and water don't coexist easily. It's not simple. So naturally, the tendency is they drift away. You need to actively engage both of them. They have to engage each other and reignite this relationship between fire and water constantly. A top marital therapist who has dealt with thousands of couples told me that ideally every three hours you have to bond with your spouse. Every three hours, you have to write, I love you, I'm here for you. How are you doing, honey? What's going on? What can I do for you? Now you'll say, Meshugana, every three hours, really? Really, I got nothing to do? Who's paying tuition? Who's paying for credit cards? Who's paying for the seminaries? Who's paying for tuition? Who's paying the mortgage? What am I, sitting on a hammock? <laughs> a husband comes to me, he says, I say, why is your marriage so stressful? He says, one o'clock in the afternoon, she calls me up and she says, how are you doing? And you know what he says to her? Every day, the same thing. He says, how I'm doing? I'm lying on a hammock, 
reading the Wall Street Journal and drinking a pina colada. That's how I'm doing. He's so insulted by your question, as though he was just enjoying life when he's working hard. And I told him, she's just trying to bond with you. She's just trying to tell you, I'm lonely, I love you, I want to be here for you. You're, you're, you're misreading, you're completely misreading the situation. So this guy said, every three hours you have to bond. But most of us don't do it. He said, but you know what? After three hours you start drifting away. But the mazel is, it's not so far. So that night, you can bring it back together. But if a day goes by, two days go by, three days go by, you're drifting further and further and further away. And you start living in your own world. So I say to you, the love can be ignited. The trust can be ignited. But you can't ignore it. It's a plant has to be watered. Your Hanukkah candle, it doesn't burn on its own. You have to put in more oil. More oil. Maybe you'll have a miracle for eight days, but the miracle is not going to continue for more than eight days. You have to replenish it with oil. A relationship is the same thing. You have to carve out space where you just connect. Your wife and your husband have to feel that you are their number one priority in life. This is the key. Women and men, listen to me, okay? <laughs> listen to an unprofessional, ther- an unprofessional advice, but it's true. Your husband and wife both have to feel that you are number one priority in life. You are the most important thing to me. If your wife doesn't feel this from you, and your husband doesn't feel this from you, we have to work on that. And make sure he or she is experiencing it. How? Learn about the five languages of love. Maybe he needs words of affirmation three times a day. Maybe she needs gifts. Maybe he needs acts of service. Maybe there's a need for touch. Maybe she or he needs quality time together. But these languages have to be nurtured. Maybe it's just a note under the pillow or a card under her pillow. But not once in three years. In honor of the 29th anniversary, we're going to go to Cancun for six days. Hero of humanity, we went to Cancun for six days for the 25th anniversary. Beautiful. I love you. Join. Let me also go to Cancun with you. Already paying two tickets, buy another one. These are continuous, continuous acts that demonstrate to her and to him, I am here with you, for you. You could lean on me, a thousand percent. I can lean on you a thousand percent. We may not agree about everything. We may have different opinions. We may have different perspectives. But we trust each other. There is a sense of belonging. This is critical. Work on it. Because you know what happens when you don't? It doesn't remain in the same place. You go there like this, like this. You drift away. And this is even with people who don't have dysfunctional trauma. Certainly... If there's insecurity and there's trauma and there's wounds, the moment he makes a comment, she makes a comment, like, oh, I knew she doesn't like me. I knew he's not here for me. So it's so important to constantly dispel the, the myths that this marriage is hopeless by continuously communicating, connecting, and showing care, empathy, and connection. Hey, Rabbi Jacobson. Rabasha, you agree with me? 100%. Somebody just texted me something, and I wasn't even going to read it, but I'm going to read it. They said, I have a great marriage, but my kids is more priority. But I completely disagree. So, 
No, no, listen, I understand what you're saying. Your kids are priority. But I want to tell you, if you really want your kids to be priority, make sure your marriage is priority. Okay? I know you want your kids to be priority because they're your kids. Make sure your marriage is priority. Unless, I know there are, I know there are exceptions. If one of the spouses is git meshige, chas v'shalom, or one of them is just completely abusive or horrible or sick, whatever. I know there are exceptions. I'm not talking about unique exceptions where you have to protect the children from a spouse who has unfortunately, you know, lost the plot. I'm talking about in most cases where you're talking about stable and responsible people. Okay, let's go to the next live question. You're on. Um, hi, I'm Rezi, um, and um, Rabbi Jacobson just mentioned something about the husband always being, if he's sane and he should be, your relationship should be priority. Um, I'm in a position more like I worked on my marriage a lot, but obviously because um, my kids sort of are my priority more than, more than, um, and if I have a position where my 19-year-old son, um, he's not really thriving in yeshiva. He's really a good boy. And I could see his qualities more than his father can. So over the years of the negativity, and he expresses, uh, expresses a lot of negativity, like even at a Shabbos meal when we have strangers, when we have family members, and even the little kids will be like, oh, yeah. Something like you'll be the king of sleeping, you know, and it's like they feed off the, they feed off the jokes, you know, quotes. So that's my, um, and you know, here and there I'll be like, I'll tell my husband, you know, something like nobody ever, you know, in a positive way, in a private, you know, setting, nobody ever changed because of negativity. And let's see how we can do this in a positive way. He's a good boy. He's not, doesn't have bad friends. He's not doing bad things. Um, and it's like, we don't have to love him when he's on drugs. You know, let's love him before the drugs. Um, so Let's and love them before the drugs. I like that. Yeah. Um, and he's... <laughs> as I say, <laughs> um, so, and, he's, and, he, and he hears me, you know, and he's like, wow, he agrees with me. Yeah, I like that. I like that approach. And then, boom, a few hours later, we have my in-laws and he's Braiding him in front of his grandparents, and and then I'll tell him, like, and then it becomes like, and then I'm trying to teach my son if you don't like what someone says, you can leave, right? And it's like part of it is insanity, right? In front of in front of his grand grandparents, I have to tell him he could leave now, and then I'm the chutzpin, you know, and then I'm the mechutzef, and my mother will say I'm the mechutzef. It's like it's it's. How do we? How do I break this? Well, chain it's of- not fair. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know your husband, so it's hard for me to give advice. But generally, it's not fair to put your parents before your spouse. It doesn't. It's not good for a marriage. Um, it's true about all husbands and wives. We love our fathers and we love our mothers and we want to be there for them. But if that is causing a conflict between our relationship with our spouse, there's something not good here. There has to be appropriate boundaries. The pasuk says in Parshas Bereishis. A man says goodbye to Tati and Mami, cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. One second. Why can't you just be one flesh with your Tati and Mami? What do you have to leave your father and mother? 
They took care of you all these years. They brought you to the world. The answer is because you cannot be one flesh with your parents like you are with your spouse. You know why? Because for your parents, you're a child. They have each other. And that comes first. You're a child. Only with your spouse can you be one. So we have to respect that relationship. Of course, we want to be there for our parents and respect our parents and love our parents and have our parents over. And it's the greatest schus to have grandparents. But it's so important. If that's compromising the respect for a wife or a husband, that has to be dealt with. So I think, if at all possible, it's extremely important to have this conversation with your husband in a kind, compassionate way, not confrontational and not angry. If you need a third person, maybe you need a third person to be able to help him understand how damaging it is. First of all, it's damaging to you. It's damaging to the marriage and how toxic it can be for the child. And if he's a father who really cares about his child, he has to fight for this child. We have to fight for our children. We have to defend our children. Even if there is disappointment and there is pain, but we want the best for our children. Our children have to feel that we are ready to fight for them. We are going to make sure they have the best chance to succeed in life. And first and foremost, by standing up for them, by standing up for their true virtues, by standing up for their true goodness, by believing in them, by bringing out the best in them, by accentuating their mildness and their beauty, by believing believing in their divine potential so that they can believe in themselves. So that's our first and foremost responsibility as parents. And I think we have to communicate, you have to communicate to him or somebody else has to communicate to him that you can't throw your child under the bus just because Zadie and Bobby arrived. On the contrary, it's in the presence of Zadie and Bobby that you have such an opportunity to build up your child. Imagine if this same child will hear that his father will respond to his mother or his father, to Zaydi and Bobby, and say, let me tell you about my Yosela, about my Matala, about my Yankala, about my Dovido, and make sure that this child can feel like a million dollars in the presence of his Zaydi and Bobby. So explain to him, these are priceless opportunities to help this kid rise above his challenges and live a beautiful, productive Jewish life. Beautiful, Rabbi Jenkinson. Really, really beautiful answer. Um, I have a bunch more questions. I'm going to try to cover just two more, if that's okay. okay I'll ask this one. It's, it was, uh, came in two different forms, but uh, my wife helped me merge it. My husband has a very low self-esteem. He doesn't believe he is capable of doing anything. He is looking for a job now for the past three years, and everything that comes up, he says, it's not for me. I can't do that. That doesn't work. I have a minimal income. Things are falling apart. He's not helping the situation. We discuss if he claims he is trying his best. I'm losing respect for him more and more every day. Please give me some advice, Rabbi Jacobson. Yeah. Low self-esteem. <laughs> so, I'm giving a sigh because it's tough. It's hard. And I'm sorry for what you're going through. And if I could be here for you in any way, I'm happy to be here. And I, 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 and, and I am empathetic for this challenge because it's a challenge. It's a difficult challenge. What I think is so important to understand again and again is that there's a catch-22 situation because if you cut him down and tell him, you know, get rid of your low self-esteem and get your life together and get a job and get out of the house and support the family, probably what's going to happen is his self-esteem will become even more shattered, and he will 
run even more into his hole and uh, run away from the situation yet even more and it won't help. On the other hand, by ignoring it and just letting him be, there's no solution. So what I feel is that it's very important for us to, again, come from a place of very deep empathy and compassion. Why does he have a low self-esteem? I don't know, but he's probably struggling with something for so many years. He may not even be aware of what's happening. He may be a very talented guy. He may actually be brilliant as far as I know. I don't know your husband again. So it's so important to be able for you to have compassion for your own pain and for the way you deal with things that are difficult in your life for your own flaws so you could now also mirror that compassion towards him and really have compassion for his journey because probably it's hurtful for him that he can't bring in a couple of dollars or more than a couple of dollars to support his family. And maybe when you're coming from that place, you can help him become aware of the fact that there's help out there because we're not created with low self-esteems. We're created as ambassadors of the Rebbein HaShalaylam in this world. Every person has Midas HaMalchus, as the Kabbalists and the mystics say. We each have an inner royal core. Kol Yisrael b'nei melachim heim, the Mishnah says. Every Jew is a prince. And the Zohar says, Kol Yisrael melachim heim. You're not only a prince or a princess, you're a king. Rabbi Aaron of Karlin said, the greatest tragedy is when a prince forgets that he's a prince. So every single one of us was sent on a mission. We were given extraordinary resources and potentials to maximize our opportunities and our potentials. Each one of us is an ambassador of the Rebbeinu Shalom in this world, an ambassador of love and light and hope and healing and wisdom and authenticity and redemption, an ambassador for truth and for Avas Yisrael and Avas Hashem and Avas Atayra. So we want to be able to bring that out in people, believe in them so that they can believe in themselves. Is there a way, through a lot of compassion, for you to create a crack in the wall, in the Mechitza Shel Barzil that your husband created to protect himself from his own pain, to show him that there's real help out there. He probably needs help. He probably needs a good therapist to help him deal with his stuff, or maybe a great Rav, or maybe a great Mashpia, or maybe a great friend, but somebody who gets it, somebody who's on the ball, somebody who has empathy, somebody who can help him get out of it. I think it's maybe the long, shorter way the Gemara discusses, the short, long way, and the long, short way. The short, long way is, I scream at you, it sounds great, but a day later we're back to square one. The long, short way, the Gemara in Erev in Nun Gimel, is it's a longer path and a little more winding, but we get to our destination. Perhaps with compassion, you can, in a in a wise way, wisdom that is reserved for women, bini yaseri nitna bi'isha, create a crack in that insecurity, in that fear, that you know there's, there's so much in you, so much in you, and without judgment, somebody can help you. And let's see if we can schlep him out and extricate him from this, uh, from this abyss. Okay, next live question. Shlemy. Yes, hi, uh, good evening, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Jacobson. I, I have a question which is a very uh, very broad question. I'm going to try to minimize my words since I see we're short in time. Um, there, there, is a, there is a joke somebody said once that not a lot, of, a lot of couples, not only that they're too young to get married, but the parents are too young, young to marry off their children. 
That being said, there is, there is uh, as Avmot Hamalach once said, there is a difference that people are mistaking in the difference between COVID and Nachas. A lot of couples, a lot of parents get involved in the children's marriage. Now, had these parents stayed out of the marriage and they would let the couple live their own life, these marriages would have been some, somewhat okay and even perfect and even good. What would you tell these couples? And at the same time, in that same word, tell these parents, first of all, on how to stay out of the couple's marriages and let them be for the way there is and just let them, even if they're not bringing you COVID, and for the same time, the, the couple should grow in their own way and be healthy and, you know, live together ever, happily ever after. Okay. In my family, I was zeicher, I'm privileged to have some very wise women in my family. Wise sisters and wise sisters-in-law. Mikublani from all of them. I don't have married children, so what's the Lashon Gemara? Mikublani Ishmi Piyishmi Beis Dinei Shel Shmuel Haramasi. Mikublani from Chachmas Nashim Bansa Beisa from wise women in my family. That when your children get married, one of the most damaging things for mothers-in-law is to start giving eitzes to a daughter-in-law or a son-in-law of how to live. And even if they ask you for an Eitzah, he's Zahir Vihishamer, because you're dealing with a very fragile relationship. You have to respect the autonomy and the independence of the new couple. Yes, if there is a serious dysfunctional situation, Khalila, you know, a couple just told me their, their son was married to a serious borderline personality that coming home from the wedding, from the wedding, she was on Facebook for a few hours, the night of the wedding when they came home, and it went worse and worse, and they pushed away and they schlepped their son out of the marriage because he was so nice, and they saved his life. His mother said he would have committed suicide. Fine. Um, there are situations where you have to intervene because we're dealing with, with you know, horrible abuse or something, whatever it is, obviously. But in a situation where, you know, people have to grow up, people make mistakes, to get involved in a marriage, start criticizing your daughter-in-law to your son or your son-in-law to your daughter. Why are you doing this? Chas v'shalom, chas v'shalom. And even if you're very afraid of something, be smart, examine, shevach giddes, shevach look what's happening. Don't right away intervene the marriage, start criticizing him and her. You want to make sure that their marriage blossoms. You want to make sure that they learn to respect each other. You want to make sure that they learn how to communicate because Be'ezir Hashem, you want them to be able to move on outside of you. And therefore, it's so important to create the proper boundaries. You want to be there for your in, for your daughter-in-law. You want to be there for your son-in-law. Of course, you want to be there for your son and your daughter. But being there for them means respecting their boundaries and not intervening where it's unnecessary and where it's damaging, unless in unique situations where she really wants your help, and there's really that close relationship of respect, gesundheit. From the side of the young couple, from their perspective, they have to really communicate honestly with each other, and sometimes they have to create healthy and respectful boundaries, 
if a father-in-law or a mother-in-law or parents are really mixing into places they shouldn't mix in, you have to do it with seichel. If you need to ask advice from somebody, ask advice from somebody. You don't want to alienate people and be disrespectful and be cruel, chas v'shalom, especially if they have good intentions and they're not trying to hurt you, they're just trying to help. Maybe they're a little controlling, maybe they don't always have seichel hayashar, but sometimes you have to create boundaries. You know, maybe this Shabbos we can't come. This Shabbos we have to be alone. Maybe we won't be able to be there at the mitzvah times till four o'clock in the morning and at every Sheva Brachas. We won't be able to. We're still busy working out our Shana Rishayna. You have to create appropriate and respectful boundaries in a way that is respectful and seicheldik and most importantly, not to alienate people and not to respond from a place of anger and insecurity, but from a place of compassion and decency and uh, respect. Jacob, let's come to one more live one. I'm sorry, but somebody's... An in interest, interesting thing. I once saw Avart. Avram Avinu is looking for a shidduch for Yitzchak. He sends Eliezer. Go yourself. Go yourself. Find a shidduch for you. you. give everything away. Everything away. He sends Eliezer. He doesn't go himself. I once saw Avart. Avram knew that Yitzchak has an opposite personality than he. Avram was chesed. Yitzchak was gvur. Avram knew. If he's going to look for a shidduch for Yitzchak, he's going to choose the wrong woman. He's going to choose a woman that works for him. Sarah was gvurit, worked for him. He sent Eliezer. Eliezer knew Yitzchak very well because he grew up with Eliezer, but he was objective. Eliezer will find the right woman for, for Yitzchak. And Eliezer found a Rivka who was Midas HaChesed. And she was gewaldic, a counterbalance for Yitzchak's gvura, Pachad Yitzchak. What do we see from here? Avram understood you care for your child but you have to remember your child is not you. And the shidduch that will work for you may not work for your child. And what your child needs in a spouse and doesn't need in a spouse may be very different than what you need in a spouse and don't need in a spouse. That is a very important and painful recognition. Can we squeeze one more live? I know it's a time for Tikkun Chatzais, but so be it. Good marriages will help bring the Gula faster, so it's part of Tikkun Chatzais. Cover the anniversary. Okay, you're on. Amen. Thank you so much for squeezing me in. Um, I guess my question is... We didn't squeeze you in. We're letting <laughs> you in with wide open doors. Thank you. So I know the financial strain was only the 4%, and but I feel like sometimes that strain of financial could cloud all the other strains such as communication because if you want to work on it sometimes you have to go to therapy and you have to go do all these things to work on it or make time but sometimes you don't have the time because of financial strain and sometimes you don't even have physical support you don't live physically near family members to even help support you freely and um so someone who does need that extra help of working through past traumas or even putting that extra effort in the work and doesn't have the financial means of even $20 towards a cleaning lady to help relieve time for wife or husband, how do they go about getting, like, how does such a person or such a couple um, go about um, working through the marriage if the couple really is committed and they really want to? Yeah. So what I would say, and, and I, and I know I'm saying this with, with, with pain and empathy. I know it's not simple. You have to reach out for help because it's more important. It's more, just like if Chas Shalom, 
there would be somebody who needs a certain medication or needs a certain procedure and there's no money. We reach out, right? They make chesed funds and charity funds and stucker funds and you call your rich uncle and your zayd and your baba. When a marriage is breaking down, to get help is very vital. In fact, sometimes it could be hatzalas nafashas, not just for them, but for generations. Healthy marriages, wholesome marriages creates love in the home, it creates Yerushamayim in the home. It creates beauty in the home. It creates Kedusha in the home. It's, the Shechina comes there. So that's why it's so important. So I would say, in Yiddish there's an expression, Shem Zichap. It's time to transcend our shame and reach out to those who care for you. Maybe it's parents, siblings, friends, people who can help, even a little bit. If there's literally nobody, yeah, reach out to organizations who can help. Reach out to rabbis who care. Askanim, people who care. I don't mean, I'm not talking about bureaucrats. I'm talking about people who care. Baruch Hashem, every Jewish community is blessed today with people who have big hearts. I know in Lakewood myself, people call me and I send them to certain individuals who are tzaddikim. I call them tzaddikim in Lakewood and in many other communities who are there for Jews, Yom Avalayla. And you know what? There's funds that are created. But don't be ashamed. Reach out. Yidna Rachmanim Bnei Rachmanim. And with Besayat Deshmaya, we'll get the help that we need. I just want to tell this lady um, that somebody just texted on the chat that she should email email Coach Menachem at Gmail. He says he will take care of it. I don't know if that makes See sense. that? You see that? It could be that this whole Zoom, yeah, which Abasha calls, what do you call Burnflix? Burnflix. Netflix, Burnflix. We're in competition. Okay, Burnflix. Burnflix is much more powerful, probably more productive. So it could be the whole thing was created just for such a moment. You know, the Baal Shem Tov says that a soul comes down for 70, 80 years sometimes to do one favor to a Jew, spiritually or physically. So here you have a Jew who's listening to the program, listening to a woman, and says to email him, and he'll, he'll provide the assistance. So look, first of all, it tells you what type of people we are. This person doesn't know you. <laughs> this person could go and say, I'll give the money to my son-in-law, I'll give the money to my yeshiva, I'll keep the money in my bank account, we'll go on an extra vacation. But Jews are brothers, we're sisters. So first of all, that itself is so encouraging, so powerful, you know. We always talk about Yeridus Hadaris and bad, 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 bad. Look, look what type of people we have, and it's happening here in the middle of the night. And it just demonstrates to you that we have to do our work and Hashem will grant us the assistance that we need financially or other assistance to be able to make our marriages blossom. Beautiful. Okay, Rabbi Jacobson. So that person who asked, send us an email, coachmanachamajimu.com, and we'll put you in, t- in contact with this person. Beautiful. Rabbi Jacobson, the whole shear, all thousands of people is with it just for that. Hello, we can make it, we can make, we can, we can connect, you know, with what's it called, we raise it to one of these things, yeah. you know? Charity. It's very special. And yet nobody knows nobody knows the impact generations to come. This is this is how what you all have to remember in life. The Rambam says, always look at yourself and at the world as equally balanced. And he says, one act, one word, and one thought of positivity, one mitzvah, can tip the scale and save the world. So when I was teaching this Rambam before Yom Kippur, Hilchas Tshuva Gimel, I said, people look at this Rambam and say, okay, you know, it's, uh, nice encouraging words, but is it realistic? Then I said, look what happened in March or February. A guy in China went and he bought a bat, because in China they eat bats. 
He bought a bat in Wuhan to feed his family for dinner. They were going to have a Sunday night bat dinner. Okay, I know it's not Lakewood style, but it's it's Wuhan style, okay? And then he sneezed. This guy sneezed. And what happened from his sneeze? 7.7 billion people were on lockdown for nine months because a guy in Wuhan sneezed. Okay, so if this is true about a sneeze in China, how much more so is it true about one mitzvah, one favor, one gesture that you do for another Yid? It changes the world whether we realize it or we don't always realize it. Thank you so much, Rabbi Jackson. Again, I want to give you a gracious share for coming on again, giving your time and helping the island. This My honor. It's tremendous. I want to apologize for all the people. Uh, according to what I, my numbers I'm seeing, I'm seeing over a thousand people couldn't get in. So we're talking about over 2,000 people that were trying to get in here tonight. I'm not sure we'll have the video and we'll post it and Rabbi Jacobs will send it out. Um, if somebody wants to contact you, you can send an email to Culture Nachum, Rabbi Jacobson. What's your website? Yeshiva.net. Do you have an email? TheYeshiva.net or you can email me RabbiYY at TheYeshiva.net. RabbiYY at TheYeshiva.net. Just give me a few days to answer because there's quite a few emails. I'm, I'm getting it ready to talk tons, so you just imagine. So again, thank you for that being a thousand, Mechazek already, literally thousands of people tonight, and uh, made the island feel, you know, there was so much takeaway material. If you could basically write a book on tonight's year. Um, again, we didn't we didn't cover a lot, so again, I'm going to ask you some uh, dritimol to come back again. We, we love you. We need you here. There's such a growing crowd over here. You have over here 700 people at 1210 at night that are coming to be mechuzik and to grow, it, show, it says a lot. It really does. Uh, I want to give a special thank you to tonight's sponsor, Klein's Ice Cream, Ari Klein, who, because he watched the show, he was so in the spell from it, he sponsored tonight. And uh, because of that, everybody knows about the shear, and it's a big, big schuss. And uh should be a schuss for you. and your Klein's Ice Cream was one of our sources of emotional nurture growing up. Let's remember that. Yeah, Klein's ice cream filled an important void in our lives. It's not the patch, it's got an ice cream. You know? came home from Yeshiva, you got a frask here, a frask there. What was, what was our protection net? What was our safe? Nobody went to therapy then. Nobody asked you, how are you feeling? You want to process your emotions? It was Klein's ice cream. Klein's ice cream saved thousands of years. In. Yeah. It's and the dafka the milchik, not the power of the milchik. Please. Nice again should be a schuss from Yom Ben Fratchin, who again in the coma and the Shem, the schuss from the Shir should be, should be tremendous for them. So, first of all, thank you so much, Coach Menachem. Thank you so much, my dear friend Usher. Thank you so much to the thousand and more than thousand Jews from Lakewood and from all over America and all over the world who have joined us here for a very special evening. My privilege and my schuss. And may Hashem help all of you and all of us to be able to face our challenges head on and realize that we're never, ever completely lost and that your soul is always more powerful than all of the adversity you face. Your neshama is divine and therefore you could contain all that you have experienced and all your experience. It doesn't mean it's easy and it doesn't mean that we don't have what to deal with, but it does mean Never ever feel that hope is lost and you're trapped. Your divine core could never be trapped because it's infinite, it's indispensable, and it's invincible. I'll just share with you, in conclusion, a very charming insight somebody once sent me. There are two Gemaris, Meseches Shabbos and Meseches Psachim. 
that say similar halacha, but about different situations. The Gemara says that a person should sell everything he has, if necessary, in order to marry the right woman. To marry what Chazal called a Bas Talmud Chacham, which means a girl who grew up in a home filled with proper values, with respect, with Avas Yisrael, Avas Hashem, Avas You should sell everything in order to marry such a woman. But the Gemara also says that one should sell everything he has in order to buy shoes. Min olim liraglov, shoes for your feet. Two things that you have to sell everything for. The right spouse and to have shoes. What's the connection between these two things? So somebody once shared with me a very charming insight that I'm going to share with you. He said, I'll tell you the connection. Number one, no matter how expensive your shoes are, they're worth nothing unless you have two of them together. If somebody goes and spends $3,000 on the right shoe or on the left shoe, it's worthless. It's going to cause you more harm than benefit. You always have to have two shoes. That's number one. Number two, two right shoes or two left shoes I'm not going to do the trick. They're worthless. You have to have two different shoes to complement each other. Number three, sometimes a new shoe is a little tight at first, but with time and patience, you adjust and both shoes become a comfortable and perfect fit. Number four, if it's hard to get the shoe on, sometimes you need to bend down and help it along. If you're going to stand erect and say, no, 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 I don't bend down, I don't compromise, sorry, I can't listen to anybody else. Bend down, get down, climb down from your tall tree and from your arrogance or hubris or which is really insecurity and get that shoe on. And finally, for the shoe to fit properly, make sure to keep the tongue tucked inside. Thank you very much, and have a good night. Thank oh, yeah. you, and good night, everybody. See you next time, same place, same, same time, same place. Thank you, everybody. Chazak. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.